You're listening to the 1208 Podcast from 1208 Greenwood Free Methodist Church in downtown Jackson, Michigan. more or less just hitting on some uh, passages from Luke that I skipped over in previous years as I haven't preached on Luke since uh, pretty much my first year at 1208. And some things have stuck out to me now that didn't then that I'd like to hit on. And today is a story about a wee little man. A wee little man was he. He climbed up in the sycamore tree to see all he could. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Y'all ain't never sing that song? How old am I? CLC represent? Eh? Three of us? All right. Well, churches usually have problems reaching young people. So if half of you don't know, we're doing good, I guess. Okay. All right. Jesus and Zacchaeus. He entered Jericho. Not, not you. My daughter looked at me like, what? What did I do? He entered the city Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead, climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord The half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. The son of man came to seek and save the lost. A mentor of mine, when he was younger, he used to steal stuff all the time. That was just kind of how he got around. (laughs) He's changed since then. He's a good mentor now. Okay. Uh, but when he was growing up, he'd do that. And there was one day where he stole this leather jacket. It was his favorite leather jacket. And he wore it all the time. And then he got saved. He's got this leather jacket on. So, so he, he pulled his Zacchaeus. He's like, I guess we'll just work off this. He goes back to the store where he once stole it. He's like, uh, I stole this a few years ago. I would like to pay back four times the price. <laughs> to make up for my sins here. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know about you. Stores aren't used to that. And from what I remember, like the owners were like, we uh, just, just, uh, what? <laughs> just pay the price of the original coat. Well, let's just do that. And so, so they went about that. But that's the moment for Zacchaeus. Jesus calls him out and he responds repentantly. He responds going the distance. And the reason this passage popped out to me when I was reading through Luke recently is because of who Zacchaeus is. See, I used to not think too much about tax collectors in the Bible until I studied tax collectors in the Bible. For us tax collectors, we don't usually think of fraud. We do think of like, oh, taxes, right? 
So like tax collectors, if the IRS gets a hold of us, then we're like, oh, come on. But we usually know that we did something wrong because they've got the accounting to show like, hey, what'd you do right here? You messed up, right? Or the tax collector that I'm paying right now or the tax accountant, they do my taxes because I don't know if you know this, pastoral taxes are done messed up. They, they make no sense. You're like self-employed and not self-employed at the same time. I don't want to talk about it. Stop bringing it up. Anyways, um, I pay my tax accountant to do my taxes because I'm too stupid to understand them myself. Right? But I don't think of her in a bad light. I think of her in a good light. She is saving me from doing these horrible taxes. And so I will pay her the money to do it. That's often how we think of taxes. Sometimes in a positive light, other times in negative. But we don't usually think of it in the terms of fraud. But tax collectors in Jesus' time, these guys were like the villains. They got to keep a portion of whatever money they could get out of you. Okay? We actually know of one tax collector. We have records of this tax collector from 40 AD. He used to be a poor man. Then he became a tax collector. (laughs) And then he defrauded and embezzled people's taxes so much that he became very wealthy. He didn't win the lottery. He became a tax collector. Later Jewish writings actually showed like this, this incredible disdain towards tax collectors. They were lumped together with other types of sinners, like thieves, which they kind of were, because they would just rob you legally, and, well, murderers. (laughs) Just imagine at that time, well, at least I'm not a tax collector. (laughs) At least I'm not out in the streets killing people. Uh, Seems like a jump. No, they're the worst, you know. Uh, They were, they had scathing judgments on tax collectors. Uh, Jews, if they decided to become uh, tax collectors, for the government of Rome, they were basically disowned. They were disqualified as a judge, so they couldn't be a witness in court. (laughs) They were expelled from the synagogues. They were considered a disgrace to their family. And if a tax collector touched a house, that house then became unclean. Uh, They were maybe even more unclean than a leper. And a leper Because the leper, he doesn't choose uncleanliness, but the tax collector, he chooses his job. The money tax collectors had to their name was deemed by others just to be robbery. Therefore, you weren't allowed to receive money from a tax collector. You weren't even allowed to receive a donation from a tax collector because that's that's not innocent money, right? And it gets worse. It gets worse. There were two Jewish houses at the time who liked to fight Uh, They were like different denominations of Judaism fighting about all these different things. Now, typically, these two houses always disagreed with each other. They, They were on opposite sides of the spectrum. But they had one agreement in regards to tax collectors. Jews were allowed to lie to tax collectors without punishment. If a tax collector came to your house, and thou shalt not lie except in the case of talking to a tax collector. Hide how much you make because they're going to rob you anyways. There you go. Tax collectors, the hatred of tax collectors bringing the community together, right? Amen. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, Sorry, God. (laughs) Don't know what that was. Yeah, he heard me. Yeah. 
Uh, so tax collectors were connected to all bad things. Unclean Gentiles, they're a reminder that the Romans ruled over them. They were beyond hated. So with all this in mind, yeah, we kind of have a little bit of empathy for Zacchaeus because we're thinking about how much everybody hates him. But at the same time, Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector and he's very rich and he says that he'll pay back anyone that he's robbed four times the amount, which leaves us to wonder, was he just like one of the others? Did he fit the stereotype? And see, this is what always has to catch my attention because me, I love preaching about justice. I love preaching about God's concern for the poor and the marginalized and the overlooked. And in this case, the tax collectors aren't those who are oppressed. They're the ones doing the oppressing. And I love to get up in front of you and preach about how Jesus sees a leper and he touches him. Jesus sees a a woman who, who's been bleeding for 40 years and touches her and heals her. Jesus takes care of this underprivileged person, this underprivileged person, this person who's never known any privilege whatsoever, and this person who's been oppressed by all of these other people. I love pointing attention to those stories, but then stories like today come across, and we realize that Jesus loves the people that we deem as our enemies just as much. That Jesus does not just dine with the oppressed, but he dines with the oppressors. And in doing so, he wins them over. He undoes oppression by showing them just a little bit of love. Just imagine, you're this tiny guy, nobody ever sees you, you're a tax collector, so people hate you when they do see you. And you climb a tree just to get a look of the miracle man that you've been hearing about all throughout town. Like he's just been going from town to town, people getting healed, and you just want to catch a glimpse. You know he's not interested in you. You know that he's, he's not going to spend time with a tax collector. And he climbs up this tree just to catch a glimpse, and Jesus makes eye contact. Says, you, you, I'm coming to your house today. Last thing he was expected. The last thing he could have possibly imagined of all the people around, Jesus wants to go to his house. And the oppressor gets saved, makes amends for his oppression, and repents. That's not a story we hear a lot of today. Why? Because sometimes we get so caught up in the Jesus justice, which... I myself have preached on almost straight for several years now, so obviously I'm for Jesus' justice. But Jesus is the one who also spends time with the oppressors, the sinners. Not because he's okay with oppression, but because he knows that's how he wins them over. The reason this passage really stuck out to me is like we spent a lot of time over the last year, of course, um, preaching the truth that black lives matter to God and therefore matter to us and we will stand and love our black brothers and sisters and be an advocate for them. We've marched in marches. We've made big deals out of this. I've written songs about it. We've done so much on that behalf. And then Jesus, in stories like this, surrounded by the minorities, 
looks up and sees, if you will in this case, follow my analogy, the police officer in the tree, the stereotyped one, the one who actually might have practiced some racism in the past, might have actually done some fraud and tax collecting in the past, points at him and says, I'm coming to your house today. And the policeman says, if I have done any racial injustice to anyone, I will repay it. If I put anyone in jail because of, of the racism that I had, whether I was aware of it or not, I will go to the judge, to the courts, repent, make myself guilty, and go to jail for the, the wrongs I have done. Like that's, that's the eyes of Jesus, to see both the oppressed, the minority, and the oppressor, the majority. He loves all, and lives are changed because of that. It's not always a guarantee. There are plenty of people that Jesus dined with who probably just left. That was a great meal. Of the 5,000 people that he served food to, there's probably plenty who left and were like, yeah, that was good. That guy was cool. Eh. I didn't really like what he said about blessed are the meek. But otherwise, you know, good notes. I took a few. The power of seeing someone, whether they're oppressed or the oppressor, goes a long way. And Jesus shows that clear right here. Think of my own life. Um, I remember we were just about to launch a dinner church. And I was feeling underlooked at the time. I felt like I was not pleasing God at all. Like I was just one failure after another. Like this was like the third restart of 1208. <laughs> it's like, God, is it going to work this time? Like, and then, you know, COVID hits only adds to the pressure. But it's like, what, what this time? Like, God, do you, do you even want me here? Like, this is the questions that pastors have to ask all the time. Because this is God's church. It's like, Am I the right fit? Am I the right person? Should I even be here? Do you want me somewhere else? Could someone do this job better because I want the best for 1208? And a lady comes from a prayer conference that uh, was meeting across our denomination. This team comes and this lady's praying and she just says to me, well done, my good and faithful servant. Man, I just about hit the ground right then. <laughs> that after all... The struggles after all the difficulty, after trying to appease God and, and not sure if I'm doing the right thing, someone sees me in the tree and speaks straight to me. Well done, my good and faithful servant. And in that moment, my heart just broke. Would God say that to me? Yes, it's scriptural. He's already said it to you in the Bible. And I was seen in that moment. And that empowered me. That set me on the right path. I think of uh, a stranger I did not know. He was preaching at an event. I was playing guitar. And then he told me, you know, put down your guitar. I'm praying for everyone. I want to pray for the band too. Came over and he put his fingers on my lips, which was weird. I'm like, what are you doing, bro? Uh, puts, his, puts his fingers on my lips and says, in the past, God has used your guitar as your weapon, but down the road, God will use your mouth. And at the time, everyone acknowledged me for music, but I was studying pastoral ministry. I wanted to be a pastor, and everyone didn't even so much as acknowledge anything in that route. And I'm like, this is what I needed to hear, because I was starting to think I was crazy. I felt 
seen. It empowered me. It changed my story in that moment. I think of Hagar in the Bible. Talk about a minority. She is a servant of Abraham and Sarah. Uh, A slave might be a better word. The families at that time, slavery was a part of the family unit. And uh, um, Abraham and Sarah were promised that they would have a baby. God told them, I will give you a son. And they tried shortcuts. They tried shortcuts to try to get around waiting for God to do this naturally. They waited and waited. Nothing was happening. Certainly not going to happen after we've gone through menopause and all this other stuff. So let's find a shortcut. And so they take uh, Sarah's slave, her servant, and they say, well, so today we have like, you know, you take certain biological components and combine them together in a lab and then implant them in a person to create surrogate birth. In ancient times, they had the same custom, but they didn't have the science. So it's just like, well, I own this slave, therefore you do the business with my slave, and therefore I will own the child that comes from it. Abraham and Sarah shortcut in a very atrocious way that the Bible itself recognizes it. When they do this, I believe this is a passage where it talks about, it uses kind of this phrase like, Sarah and Abraham did what was right in their own eyes, which is a callback to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve messed up. They did what was right in their own eyes instead of God's. Abraham and Sarah did the same thing. And then, of course, like any soap opera, like you'd always expect to happen, Sarah gets jealous of Hagar. I just think she can have a baby. No, you think she's all that in a bag of potatoes. What, you think you're making your way up the ladder in the family? What's going on? You know, so eventually she kicks her out. She asks Abraham, like, hey, uh, this uh, concubine of yours, let's just uh, let's get rid of her. I don't like her. I don't like her son. I don't like any of it. Plus, we're going to have our own son. Like, God made it happen, so we don't even need her anymore. So Abraham and Sarah, they fail for the umpteenth time in their story. And they send Hagar and her baby into the wilderness to basically die. Maybe they'll find somewhere. Maybe they won't. Who knows? Along the way, she gives up. And she she decides, I'm just going to put the baby somewhere where I don't have to watch it die because this is just miserable. And then something happens to her that never happens to just about anyone. Jesus shows up. (laughs) Which, if you've been here long enough, you know when I talk about the angel of the Lord of the Old Testament who always represents himself as God embodied in a physical form on the earth. This is who Abraham talks to, who is Yahweh just walking around. The angel of the Lord, Jesus, shows up. And in that moment... She feels seen. She's in the middle of the wilderness. Life is falling apart, but she's right next to a well. This this little moment of life right here. Water that can sustain. And the angel speaks life into her. Jesus speaks life into her. Jesus acknowledges her as a human being. Not as a slave, not as a minority, not as a person at the bottom of the social ladder. But as a human being, and she is so touched 
by this moment that she gives a name to the well there in the wilderness. She names it Bir Laharoi, which translates the well of the living one who sees me. The power of being seen. That Abraham and Sarah, the oppressors, God loves them. That Hagar, the oppressed, whom God is certainly angry about how Abraham and Sarah have treated her, he sees her too. And it is easy in our human hearts to divide lines and say, you're the worst, you're the best. I hate you, I love you. Rather than come with the eyes of Jesus to say, regardless of who you are, I see the image of God upon you, I love you, and I walk with the peace of Christ to say that you are worth God's love if you will repent and turn to him too. And maybe that is a message people will listen to. Not always. Israel sure didn't when God tried to call them out a million times. Sometimes the messenger does get killed, i.e. the prophets of old, i.e. Jesus himself. But sometimes, occasionally, when we walk in love, people listen. So let me pray for you and I'll let you go. God, we, uh, we all come to you with hearts that are rock solid somewhere. That there is somewhere in our lives that we have just been chiseled down enough, we have just been broken down enough, that we no longer can operate as we should. We are not tabula rosa. That is, we are not blank slates. Some people see someone working a particular job like tax collecting and immediately see the stereotype and don't have the eyes to see with Jesus. And some people are the opposite, where they see the minority and instantly see a a stereotype and don't have the eyes of Jesus. Jesus, we know you love justice. We know you love it so much that at the end of all things, you are coming down to earth to get rid of everything that is wrong, everything that is evil, everything that is unrepentant. You will deal with that. That is the end of the story of this age of the earth. But, but... In the meantime, you have taught us to leave vengeance in your hands for that day. You have taught us to be repentant. You have taught us to be forgiving. And to do all of that while also battling for justice and for what's right. And that is a tricky thing to do. We look up to heroes like you, Jesus, as well as, as, well as heroes like uh, Martin Luther King, who, who could have just had a hardened heart. Who could have just gone out there and been aggravated and yelled at people, but instead said to our most bitter opponents, we will win you over by how we love. Jesus, if you can teach us that, and if those who are oppressed can teach us that as well, then we can go there. But we need your heart. So anyone in here, God, with a, a, a hardened heart in any area of their lives, would you just soften it right now? That they would be able to live out of a place of passion, but also out of a place of love. Give us your eyes to see people as you see them. Because if we don't have that, we just have religion. Give us your Holy Spirit. 
who will give us wisdom whenever we ask for it, who will convict us whenever we need it. May our hearts remain open to that. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you are dismissed. We will catch you next week in one way or another, be it outside, inside, or online. Check out our Facebook page throughout the week for more updates on that. But we do plan just in general to always be in person unless something goes a different route. So that being said, we'll catch you guys next week. And I love you.